Good morning. Um, if you, uh, I, I've been asked to teach on this subject uh, last week and this week. If you have any angst about that, please direct it to your rector. <laughs> Father Paul, <laughs> this was his idea to do this. But we, we began last week pointing out that the Bible tells us that money is both wonderful and deadly. It's um, wonderful because the story of God's people is that God, as the creator, wants to provide for his creation. So let's listen to Jesus on this point. This is out of the Gospel of Luke. It says, Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet, God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, Jesus tells us, why do you worry about the rest? Consider the wildflowers, how they grow. They do not labor, they do not spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these flowers. If that is how God clothes the grass of the fields, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world, people who are outside of faith, they run after such things, all such things. But your heavenly Father knows you need them. So seek first his kingdom. And then these things will be given to you as well. Jesus is simply saying, don't freak out about life. Ravens, they don't sow, reap. These are birds. They don't even tithe. Yet God feeds them, and God cares for them. So he's saying, God cares for you too. He points out how the wildflowers grow. He says their clothing is not from their own work, that God dresses them and does a fine job at that. And Jesus is basically saying, he'll dress you too, your father. He concludes that those who know God should not panic over provision. Panic is what pagans do. People who don't know God, but those who know God should re recognize that God will care for us. We are simply to seek God's kingdom or God's influence, God's engagement with us in this kind of very practical thing. And then other things will be added to our lives as gift from God. Now, though this is the wonderful side of money, that God Almighty creator of all, continues to engage with this creation and to provide for it. It's such a beautiful idea. I shared with you last week, there's a dark side to the story, to this business of money and provision, which is why Jesus had a lot of woes when it came to rich, a lot of woes when it came to money, a lot of watch out, there's some dangerous, it's a fire swamp, this whole business about money. It's dangerous and because it can vie for your soul. In Matthew 6, he warns, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, you'll be devoted to one 
despise the other, and then he clarifies what he's saying. You cannot serve both God and money. There's a way in which we have to be sensitive about this business of provision and wealth and money because money somehow vies for your heart. I shared last time that most preachers who I've listened to over the years who overemphasize prosperity are usually completely silent about money's dark side. It's as if they believe money is only good and that the more that we get, the better we are. But Jesus never bought into the idea that affluence was only a good sign. In fact, he espoused quite the opposite view. If you have any questions about why, you may want to listen to last week's podcast. We don't want to revisit that on the Sanctuary website. But where we landed last time was that the only way we can strike a safe space between trusting God for God's provision in our lives and for increase in our lives over against being controlled by money, that the balance between that, the way that you can live in a space that's safe is through the grace of giving. This is the why behind giving. It isn't a gimmick. It isn't a quid pro quo with God where we do something, he promises you something. It's really just something that keeps us safe in our hearts and in our lives. This is the secret to experiencing the wonderful side of money where you can enjoy the provision of a loving father while staying free from money's dark sort of idolatrous pull on you. The act of giving secures that for us. I shared this text with you last week. I wanted to read it again. It's so good. Acts 20. This is Paul's talking about Jesus. And he says, And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. This is saying there's something better than getting what you want. There's something better than always getting what you want. And that is, is giving to everything you want. Giving to things that stir you and engaging with helping others around you. There's a kind of life that is afforded to us and uh, open to us where, our, where we live in a kind of joy of giving. There are scads of biblical injunctions on the subject of giving along with lots of ways the historical church has talked about this. Um, but much of it's beyond the scope of a homily on Sunday morning. Um, but today I want to talk about five ways of giving that we find in the Christian tradition. Kinds of giving that the disciple of Jesus is invited to participate in. They are simply tithing, then offerings, and then offerings are broken down into the other five. Alms giving free will offerings, family giving, and gospel giving. Now, I think the most important of these is the tithe, but I'll come back to that last. And so this is a very practical message, so if you want something wonderful, uh, you could probably leave now. <laughs> Let me start with almsgiving, okay? Which is the kind of giving that's just oriented to helping people that are less fortunate than we are. Needs that we pop into or bump into. This kind of giving includes everything from seeing somebody that's just in a hard place where we, and we try to give something to meet it. Could be a simple meal, could be extra cash for somebody. Um, it could be the nudge to help with some finances when you see or hear about a disaster, earthquakes, fires, floods, tornadoes, anything like that, where there's this impulse that you want to say, what can I do? And you want to do something that's uh, uh, in, the, in some sort of uh, physical way. 
to help those displaced by war or trouble, to aid those who have food insecurity, or the people who have houseless problems, where you're trying to say, what can we do? How can we engage? That's a very beautiful thing called almsgiving, that God stirs the heart of his children to engage with. This is from the Apostle Paul, who was speaking of a deep crisis that the church had seen about a famine that was going on around them. He says in 2 Corinthians 8, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people they were giving. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So they were meeting this, this physical need with financial strength and gifts that they would bring. And the takeaways here is that there was a real physical need that stirred the church when they heard about it. And, and they gave as they were able. This was not a set amount. This wasn't like the tithe, which is 10% that's predetermined. This was up to them, motivated entirely on their own. No one was trying to psych them into it or to manipulate them into some sort of a false promise of extra blessing. And, and let me just sidebar and say this. Always watch out when you hear somebody say, if you give to this, God will do some special blessing for you. In the church historical, this is called the sin of simony. This is Simon in Acts 8 when he saw the blessing of God coming through the apostle's hand, offered them money so he could participate in blessing. Whenever you attach blessing to money in terms of extra grace or something, it's called the sin of simony. This, this isn't the reason we give. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to the project. I love that. There are no hard, fast rules in this area of giving. Just give to what you want. When you want, how much you want, however much you can, it's beautiful space. Uh, Paul continues a few verses later to show the joy in this kind of giving. He says in verse, nine of chapter, uh, verse seven of chapter nine, uh, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly, not reluctantly, or under compulsion, not to keep up with other people, not to try to secure some blessing. Just, God loves a cheerful giver. I love that. This is the giving that brings cheer. The same rule applies for other kinds of giving beyond alms. There's this free will category, which is just, you like a project and you want to give to it. I mean, it could be something like a special offering for a ministry initiative, a church building project, a missions work, St. Jude's Hospital for Kids, Meals on Wheels. I mean, just anything that you look at and you think, oh, that's awesome. I like that that's going on. And you choose to give toward that. That's free will offerings. Then there's family giving. This is an actual category of giving. Um, God wants you to bless your family. You know, not just bless the kingdom. God wants you to use your strength to give blessing to your family. This is out of 1 Timothy 5. And whoever does not provide for his relatives, and especially his family members, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Hmm. 
Proverbs 13 says, a good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children. Those, if you're thinking about leaving something for a second generation from you, that's a beautiful thing. That's a holy thing. Now, obviously, this is a result of long-term planning, not necessarily short-term planning. I mean, you're not supposed to provide for, you know, your uh, children's children and, you know, invest in the lotto, trusting the Spirit to help you. I remember in, uh, when we were pastoring, this is our third church we've been involved with, and, and uh, in one of the churches, we were in one of those stretches where we were building, and man, we could use every dime we could get our hands on. And I was standing in front of the congregation, and I said, hey, I said, you all know that we're in this building season, and everybody's sort of sacrificing. I said, I want you to know something. I said, I've been saving now for a number of months. I've got $2,000. And I said, let me tell you what I'm going to do with that. I'm going to take my family on vacation to Florida, and I'm going to waste it on them. I said, you know why? Because I love my family more than I love this church. Doesn't mean I don't love the church. Doesn't mean I'm not sacrificial for the church. We are, but we love our families too. It's important that you're not just giving to everything other than your family. And then the fourth, the fifth one is gospel giving. This is the kind of giving that's associated with the hundredfold return that you probably heard about in the gospels. We'll come back to that in a moment. It's primarily about those who leave the marketplace and enter into full-time ministry. And they need God to extra bless in that kind of situation because they're not working in the natural kind of way by farming or business or that kind of thing. Um, you'll have to snoop that one out to see what the essence of that is. But now let's shift to the, to the uh, one, this tithing business. It's a biggie. There are facts and foibles to address here. So let me start with the facts. Really three sweet facts about tithing. First of all, it appears in the Bible before the law of Moses is given. So it seems that to be a thing not based upon law, but based upon relationship. And it seems to be a declaration of a relationship that we have with God. Giving the tithe, which is 10% of your income, is a declaration that God is the source of everything you have, of the reason you can even make wealth, is that God somehow, the energy of even being able to work is accredited and assigned to God. It's rooted in texts like Deuteronomy 8, which says, do not say to yourself, my power and the might of my own hand have gained me this wealth. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your ancestors as he is doing today. Somehow, the business of tithing is you putting a flag in the ground and you declaring that I do not get wealth on my own. It's also a thanksgiving to God for enabling you to have the capacity, the wittiness, the talent, the strength to make wealth. When we tithe, we're saying all I am is from you, all my ability is from you, and I'm giving this as a declaration of that and as a thanks for that. That's what the tithe is about. The miracle associated with this specific kind of giving, this tithe, is that it opens more space in your soul for contentment, strength, discipline, wisdom, and it quashes things like greed, fear, 
and it makes your life more enjoyable. I remember early on when Gail and I were kids, really, you know, we're in Bible school, we're trying to figure out how to trust God with our lives in this business of provision, and we were pretty short on cash. I mean, uh, the miracles that we experienced first in that context was the miracle of contentment and the miracle of being disciplined with our spending. We had to be very careful with money. We would sit down and you know, figure out where we could eat, you know, what, when, what we could do for entertainment, down to the penny. Instead of feeling crushed with so little, we made it a kind of game. And we would laugh and talk about, well, we don't have enough you know, to really do anything much this week, right? And we would laugh about it and talk about how could we make this stretch? We shared meals. We didn't go out to fancy places. Everything was a challenge. And we would sit down and we'd calculate our tithe down to the penny and give, you know, $19.72, you know. Uh, we tried to participate in every special offering we were involved with. And we went to a Bible school that they had special offerings a lot. <laughs> they became not so special more regular, but we would give, you know, it was a lot of times it was a dollar or $2, but every time we refused to get aggravated about it, we just would make it a game. Like, here you go, God, we love you. We want something to happen and we're going to use whatever strength little as it is for you. I think that was a miracle. It was the miracle of joy and discipline. No freaking out. No comparison. We weren't looking at other people and saying, I wish we could keep up with them. No being crushed by lack. We just laughed a lot and we prayed with the promises of God's help. And, and tithing and giving, it started to see like our expectation of trust started to grow. And we started seeing these miracles of influence. You know, even again in Bible school, uh, we always knew how much it would, you know, it would take each month and we knew how much we were going to be short and we went after it. We started praying about it. One time we knew we'd be short for about, about $250. This is back in the 70s. $250 is a lot of money. And uh, we, we, we would, and we were short. We knew it would be about six weeks. We were going to need about $250-ish and we had no way by looking at how much we were making because we were both were working, doing everything. They thought, gosh, we can't quite get there. And I remembered this couple in St. Louis that owed us about $260. And I looked at Gail and I said, honey, you know, we hadn't heard from them. They've been owed us this for two years, a little over two years. Hadn't heard a word from them. And I, I said to Gail, I said, honey, let's pray for them. Let's pray that God will bless them and let's pray that they remember us. <laughs> so we nailed it. We started praying, didn't con contact them, didn't write to them. We just started praying, and about two weeks later, we got a letter from them. And I tell you what, you can imagine how we giggled over that. Because we had said nothing. We got this letter, and it had the first half of that money, about $125. And they said, we think we can get this to you in about another month. We'll get, we'll get the other $125 to you. And it ended up that with a couple of installments within the timeline we had, we were able to keep up with that money that we needed. I mean, Shondai, baby. <laughs> Let me give you one more. There's so many of these beautiful, precious. God, you're a God who really sees. You see us. 
This one, we were in another uh, in, in season, and even though our regular bills were all met, we, we were very diligent about that. Um, it was coming to Christmas, and we had nothing extra, nothing for gifts for each other, and nothing for gifts for family, and that kind of thing. And, and I, I remember Gil said, you know, let's, let's, let's pray about that. I mean, it's a silly thing. I mean, it's not a real need. It's a extra. But let's pray. And I said, well, hey, let's, let's pray for something extra to pop up for me to do. I mean, I work in and stuff, but I have a little extra time in the afternoons. Maybe I could find something. And so we started praying about it. God, I, would you open up some opportunity that, and help me find it, you know, where I could do a little extra work for these next few weeks before it was in before Thanksgiving, so about six weeks before Christmas. I said, "Could I? Would you help me find something?" So I'm walking out on the parking lot at the Bible school about three days later after we started praying that, and I'm walking in about. 15 feet from me, I heard a guy say, I don't know, we're looking for somebody that can work in the afternoons before Christmas. And I looked up and I said, I'm your guy. <laughs> and I got that job. I, I was working on that. And I remember when I was working, I was stocking shelves in this place. And I was thinking, this is, this is your gift to me. It was so fun going to work for this, whatever, $3 an hour, whatever it was. It was, it was so fun. Miracles are not magic tricks. They're really wonderful, natural things that happen and seem to happen more when you trust. Proverbs 3 claims that God will cause us to win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. That's the miracle. Is all of a sudden, your life has gravitas. Your life starts pulling things, and you don't understand why, but opportunity, ideas, something that gives you strength. And when your souls are well-formed, when you're calm and settled over God's provision in your life, and you're not freaked out or greedy or fearful, when, when you're not grabby or manipulative about money, when you're obedient to the unseen God, even when that costs you, you become more attractive and carry more emotional intelligence and social gravitas. And people will want to join in with you where you are. They'll want to be a part of what you're doing or what you're leading. Luke 6 says it this way. This is Jesus. Give. Not always get, not always grab. Live to give, to enter into the needs around you. And it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. One version says, people will pour stuff into your lap. For with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. <laughs> the miracle happens in your soul. Not by God magic. The promise behind tithing and giving is that you become more irresistible to others. They move towards you. The second aspect of tithing, that's a fact and a beautiful thing, is that it's obedience. It's a thing of obedience. It's not a thing of free will. All of us are asked to tithe. Same sacrifice. You don't have to do it. I mean, God doesn't force things on us. But he does ask us to obey him in this. I mean, hmm, 
All of us are called to pray. A lot of people don't. All of us are called not to gossip. A lot of people still do. And God still loves you and me when we don't do the things he's asked us to do. Tithing is a thing of obedience. It's how you declare God as your source. It's how we declare that we make sure that we're not serving money and that we're thanking God. It's a beautiful obedience. It's because of this bondage to tithing. Tithing is said to help create solidarity with the poor. Why? In the church, that's the way they thought about it, that it creates solidarity with the poor. Why? Because we experience the no way out that the poor deal with every day. Having no money crushes a person. Tithing is meant to do a little crushing in you. Some will scream, I don't want that. That's your prerogative. God will not hate you, God will not be mad at you, but I bet, as you've discovered with other kinds of disobedience, that it tends to cloud you a bit and you miss stuff. Miss stuff that's sweet. Miss stuff that's rich. Miss stuff that makes life happier. But again, God still loves you, will act on your behalf when crud gets too thick for you. God always is on your side, always is giving towards you if you never respond in this. The third aspect of tithing is what Jesus said in Luke 16. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. If you read the whole context here, what Jesus is simply saying is that the kingdom of heaven and heaven itself is influenced by worldly wealth. Somehow as we tithe into church work, we gain friends that will be with us in eternal dwellings. And that's why Jesus says, store up your treasure in heaven. There's a way in which we use a part of our funds to make sure people hear and cooperate and move with God, which affects heavens. Okay, so let me mention a couple of foibles about this business of tithing. I remember being in services and watching TV where preachers would point out how tithing was like sowing and reaping, and they would connect it to that. That if you sow money into an offering, it was like putting seed in the ground and that God would have to give you a harvest. Now, my problem with it was always that I felt like they were connecting, uh, instead of connecting tithing to this notion that you're declaring God as your source and declaring thanksgiving to God, that instead it was a way to get God to owe you. Then there was this hundredfold return teaching that I would hear about. It was explained from the Gospels, if you give, God will owe you 100 times back on what you gave, shazam. <laughs> I was at a meeting at Oral Roberts University with some pretty big name faith guys and gals in the late 90s, and one of the guys pulled out while he was preaching, one of the guys pulled out of his pocket this calculator tape. It was about eight foot long or longer. It was just huge calculator tape he's pulling out of his pocket. And he declared that he had calculated what God owed him. And he was carrying it around. I have a really hard time with that kind of stuff. I mean, firstly, I felt that kind of teaching promotes that, that's promoted, is being promoted by those who have too much to gain from it being promoted. Which seemed to smack of something bad, something toxic to me. 
Then from a purely analytical perspective, I thought, come on, this doesn't make sense. I mean, I thought if the hundredfold thing was really true, why didn't these preachers just grab the first hundred dollars and give it? Which would have yielded 10,000 more. And then if they gave that $10,000, it would have yielded a million more. And then if they gave that million, it would have yielded 100 million more. With just three givings, that ministry would never need another outside dime. Now that would be a testimony. But that's not what happened. Listeners just got the eternal promise that you should give and that you would get a hundredfold return as you give it to me. I don't think giving is supposed to be a money scheme or a personal promise of magical money coming back to you. I think it's supposed to be a love story of a father who actually sees Another foible about this had to do with the threats of not giving. Things like, if you don't tithe, you're robbing God. Now, that's an actual Bible verse that says that, but it's in the First Testament, under the law of Moses, which carried a curse for those who broke it. Let me get that monkey off your back in one fell swoop here, Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the broken law by becoming a curse for us. Touchdown, Jesus. Giving under Jesus is never a legalism like it was under the First Testament. It's always the grace of giving. Giving is not a gimmick. It is a relationship with God. All right, so a couple of housekeeping issues. Who do you give the tithe to? Ed Gunger. (laughs) That's your business, really. Who you give the tithe to is your business. I think your local church where you attend makes sense because that's the group that's tending to your pastoral needs and working with you to reach the world, but it's not a legalism. Can you split your tithe? Maybe. Pray about it. Think it through. Do you give 10% of your net or 10% of the gross on your paycheck? Up to you. What's your confidence level? Pray about it. What do you sense is right for you? It might change in different seasons. Should you tithe from your business? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, church organizations tithe what comes in. The Diocese of St. Anthony tithes from what comes in, the full 10% of everything that comes, comes in. But in Wisconsin, the church I pastored there, we had a bunch of farmers. Tithing would have killed them financially. They were living off about 6% of their milk check for their whole personal needs. If they'd have died, they'd add nothing. Sorry this isn't all black and white. But because the world of giving is all relational, it's more art than science. More play than rigid demand and compliance. So, in conclusion, the best words a preacher can say. Remember, You don't have to give a dime and an offering and you can refuse to tithe and God will still be your provider. You don't earn provision by giving. You never want what you've earned from God, to be honest with you. 
You want what Jesus has earned for you. But giving secures a kind of sense of trust. Why giving is so important and helpful is that it expands our faith. To be able to more easily trust God as our provider, it trains your soul. It cleanses the anti-faith stuff like fear and dread. And it rips through that stuff and it builds hope in us. We must give, not to manipulate God or to enter some quid pro quo thing, but to cleanse our souls from greed, from fear. Giving is to provision what fasting is to prayer. Remember Jesus, there were incidents where Jesus would say, the disciples came to him and said, why can't we help this? Jesus said, you need some faith and prayer. In other words, some, some, excuse me, you need some uh, prayer and fasting. Somehow fasting energizes prayer, pushes it deeper. Well, giving is like that. It pushes this ability to trust. Um, I think it also prepares you for storms. Remember Jesus said, if you hear my words and don't do them, you're like a person who builds your house on a sandbar, on the sand, and the storm comes, the waves come, house is destroyed. He said, but if you hear my words and you practice them, the discipline of listening and obeying is amazing. Then your house is like built, both built houses, but the house is built on rock. And the floods come, the rains come, the storm comes, and your house remains standing. There's, there's the, the, question, the question about our lives is to recognize storms come. How do you want to survive them? Start all over again because everything is ripped away? or because you've been obedient and you can make it through even the hardest of times. Giving does that. So, hear Jesus' words to you. Your Father knows you have needs. Your Father will take care of you. Do not fear.